So we've got this situation. They've three days. They've travelled to Jordan, and then now is they've got to be overnight and look into the following day when they're going to be crossing the Jordan. There are times in our lives when we find ourselves looking forward to events. Um, sometimes they're nice events like holidays, but sometimes major events like getting married, moving house. Sometimes events we're not so happy about like a major operation. Often these events are marked by excitement and anticipation. More often than not, they're also marked by a degree of apprehension. Even going on holiday these days can be like that. And we often ask the question, how is this actually going to work out in this situation? There are other times when we're faced with major changes or circumstances that we know are far beyond our ability to cope with. The Jewish anticipation of this new land had been around now for about 500 years. It came all the time from the time when God made that promise to Abraham that God would give him all the land that he could view. And this was now on the cusp of fin finally being fulfilled. We know the Israelites could have entered into that land 40 years earlier if it hadn't been for unbelief and fear. Now back in chapter 1 of Joshua we read Joshua saying, God saying to Joshua, pass through the camp and command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourselves for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving to you to possess for within three days you will cross over so they're there actually yes on the, on the Jordan bank in three days they will cross over and Joshua has told this to the officers you remember this is a huge company of people Joshua himself wouldn't have been able to necessarily speak to the whole group, so he has these officers who take this message to the people. Prepare provisions for yourself, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan. Now I wonder what the conversations would have been amongst this huge company of people. Many of them would have heard the stories passed down about this land. They would have heard the stories about the giants and how the people had turned back in fear. If there was now some excitement amongst the people, there must have been also, among many, great anxiety. What lay ahead? And as Jordan came into view, Jordan was in a time of flood, and there were fortified cities lying ahead of them. Jericho was the very first one. Jordan today is nothing like it used to be. We're told in a 2010 report that the Jordan River today contains only 3% of the water that it did 100 years ago. We're talking 3,000 years ago. So we haven't really got much idea of what the Jordan looked like. This is a nice placid picture now of the Jordan uh, on a calm day, not in the spring floods.
Right. That's not showing up on the screen. Anyway, we'll have to stick with that one. Um, that is taken in 1935, so that is about 100 years ago, and that is roughly the area where they would have crossed. Um, there is the Jordan in spring flood. Um, so it's hard to imagine what it was like all those years ago. Let me try and get some of these others. No. Now this is in spring flood now. Um, pretty uh, raging torrential river. Um, there probably is roughly the area where they would have crossed, where all the um, scrub and the uh, bushes are. Um, quite a, and that is, as I say, further down, and that is the flooded area. So th that is the Jordan today, basically, those ones of the torrent, torrent and the powerful river. Uh, as I say, we don't, haven't got a clue what it was like 3,000 years ago. Um, probably a lot more wild bushes and definitely a lot more wild animals around. Dale, Rife, Dale Ralph Davis writes, so we're on the same page as you've written these days, the actual Jordan Valley between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea varies in breadth from 3 to 14 miles. Within this valley is the river's floodplain, which is 200 yards to one mile wide. The floodplain was packed with tangled bushes and jungle growth, hence it was not so much the river as the jungle that was difficult to pass, the falls of the Jordan being as much way through the jungle as through the river. Then there was the river channel itself, which is, which if similar to the 19th century conditions, was from 90 foot to 100 foot wide with depths varying from 3 to 12 foot. The current was strong because of the drop in elevation, elevation, a drop of 40 foot per mile near the Sea of Galilee, with an average drop of 9 foot per mile overall. This means that the river the Israelites faced that springtime was a powerful river, probably up to a mile wide. So why was it God led the people to cross the river at this time of year? Well, probably because it looked impossible. And God always wants to show his mighty grace in the face of our helplessness and bring glory to his name. Life in a fallen world under the wrath of God involves us all facing at times problems from which we have neither the strength nor wisdom to meet. We are taught in the chapter that the battle really is the Lord's. As we just briefly work through the chapter, you will spot some Ps. So the first one is the preeminent place of the ark. The ark represented the person and promises of God. We all know here what the ark was. It was a box of wood overlaid with gold. And as God had commanded that the ark would lead the people of God through the Jordan, so it was very symbolic of the fact that God himself was in the vanguard. He was going before 
Now we all know that in that ark were the stone tablets. We know on the top was the mercy seat. And above all, on that mercy seat was the sprinkled blood of the offerings. And that symbolised the atonement that was there. And it's a wonderful picture to me. Uh, we often talk about death being going through the Jordan. It's a lovely picture that for us as believers, it's the blood of Christ that means that we have that way through death in safety. The fact that the people were to follow the ark was a picture of how God would guide them and how victory would be achieved. Now the emphasis in this passage seems to be on guidance. We saw that, that you may know the way to go. So it would be sensible in this regard to allow a distance between the priests carrying the ark and the great congregation of the people so that they all got a good view of the way being taken. We're talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people here. Now, I get that from the passage that that was the reason for this, but also other people say, quite rightly probably, uh, that the separation was out of regard for the holiness of God, that this was just recognising that that art symbolised the very presence of God. So we can hold both those, both those things in our mind. So the preeminent place of the ark, that was going to be going into the river. And then we read in verse 5, the people were to consecrate themselves before following the ark. In verse 5, Joshua commands the people to consecrate themselves. So this is our second P, the people consecrated for the wonders that God would do among them. Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now this is surprising from a military point of view, if you think they're crossing the Jordan and going into a hostile area, it might have been sensible to say, clean your equipment, sharpen your swords, and get a good night's sleep. But on this occasion, for the, the people of God, the emphasis was this night, consecrate yourselves. Now we could go into detail about what that consecration may have looked like. We've got various guidance in the Old Testament books. But it was a spiritual preparation that would bring God's power on, our, on their work, their ministry as they were going to follow God's obedience to cross the Jordan. It was spiritual preparation. And we all recognise that. And that's why in a small way Whenever you're taking clubs, whenever you're taking an epilogue on a Sunday morning, we try and have prayer to consecrate ourselves and recognise we're going forth to do the work that we're doing. At club, FOY, lambs, or whatever it is, starting whatever we're doing with prayer. Coupled with consecration, the people were then to expect God to work a miracle. Joshua says... The Lord will do wonders among you. So I wonder as they looked at the raging Jordan, whether they had much confidence, whether they were eager, whether they were gripped by a sense of wonder. wonder how many of them truly believed God's promise. Maybe our challenge when we come to prayer on a Thursday night, how much do we really believe God's promises? 
how much are we eager to move ahead with what we're doing in proclaiming the gospel with the camps with whatever we're doing because we really believe God is going to honour his promise in what we do Israel was not to lose sight of their God who can do the humanly impossible Matthew Henry says the people of Israel are now entering into the holy land and therefore must sanctify themselves God was about to give them uncommon instances of his favour which by meditation and prayer they must carefully consider that they may give God the glory and take to themselves the comfort of these appearances. On the previous occasion, as we said, when they had been called to take possession of the land, they disobeyed for fear of the giants in the land. And there was a great risk. But once again, their hearts would fail them for fear as they considered the walled cities and the raging Jordan. The remedy from God is this. Consecrate yourselves. Consecrating our lives to the God of all the earth. That's what we're told here, Lord of all the earth. Consecrating our lives to the God of all the earth is also willingly submitting to his will and protection. If you think about it, that's the important part about consecration. When we sing a hymn like, Take my life and let it be. We're not just consecrating our life to Christ, we're actually submitting to him and saying, I'm willing to put my life in the palms of my hands and for you to do with me what you want to do. Are we like that? I heard um, Alistair Begg recently saying, we're often hindered in really doing that because of our mortgage, because of our house, because of the other bills we've got to pay. We're so tied down, as he said, with all the stuff in the garage that we can't clear out. Um, that we can't possibly say, Lord, I'm willing to go wherever you send me. But that should be our whole being. I remember when I was a child going to the mission meetings in London once again, as we used to in those days, when missionaries came from abroad, pioneer missionaries who'd been abroad for five years, and they told of the call and how they'd left everything to go abroad. And I used to be scared stiff in case God called me to be a missionary. At that time, and as I grew older, I realised that in fact... I did need to have and my God wouldn't call me to do something that he wouldn't equip me to do anyway as we face decisions and situations that have the potential to strike fear and apprehension into our lives let us pray this great prayer of Havagal take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee take my will and make it thine it shall be no longer mine and we say with Fanny Crosby all the way my saviour leads me what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? So we've briefly seen the preeminent place of the ark, the people consecrated uh, to Christ and to God. And then now we see God's purposes in the forthcoming miracle. And this is fairly explicit in the chapter, God's purposes. These verses reinforce the concept of God's grace. They show clearly that crossing the Jordan and dispossessing the enemy is going to be entirely the work of God. Our acts of consecration and obedience remove the barriers to God's power and so prepare our hearts to receive God's grace. So the first purpose of the forthcoming miracle is to confirm that Joshua is God's chosen instrument. Now this was very, very important. Let's first note it's never for us to exalt ourselves. 
It is only God who can exalt us. God says, This day I will begin to exalt you, Joshua, in the eyes of all Israel, so that they will know that as I have been with Moses, so I will be with you. And then later on we read, On that day Yahweh exalted Joshua in the eyes of all the people, so they feared him as they had feared Moses. They respected him as they respected (coughs) Moses. Now, in God's wisdom, how important this was. As Joshua in the days ahead would be needing to lead the people into some very daunting situations. And they would need to know, without doubt, that Joshua was God's man. And they were to do what he says. And what he says would be what God wanted them to do. Imagine what they had to do around Jericho. It would seem nonsense if they didn't have confidence in Joshua. On that day, Yahweh exalted Joshua in the eyes of all the people so that they feared him as they had feared Moses. So that was one purpose of this great miracle. But also, let's just put ourselves in Joshua's position. And I did think about this. When he looked at the Jordan, what faith he needed personally to entrust these tens of thousands of people, men, women, children, babies, to take them across this Jordan. It's relatively easy, this is an important lesson that came to me, it's relatively easy for us sometimes as individuals to take a step of faith when the consequences will only impinge on us. But when it impinges on our family, on our wife, on our children, on others, how much faith we need. I remember Michael Tugwood when he first set up the pioneer work on Thamesmead, going down to that new town. It may have been okay for Michael to say, okay, I'll go, when the Lord called him, but he was taking his wife and he was taking his young children into that very, very (coughs) challenging area. And this is what sometimes we're called to do, and particularly if we're called into full-time service. So the first purpose was the confirmation of Joshua as God's chosen instrument. The second purpose was that the people would know that God was among them, that God was among them. The logic is obvious. If God can tame the mighty river, then God can tame the enemy. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Hivites, and the Perizzites, and the Gergeshites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into Jordan. Now Ralph Davis again writes, there is a certain logic behind this assurance. If Yahweh can tame a mighty river, he can also repel the attacking Amorites. If he can stop up the Jordan, he can put down the Gergeshite. If he can get you into the land, he can surely give you the land. Quote, I'm not quite sure where this quote came from now, one of those. The crossing of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan, and the death and resurrection of Christ are explosions of God's power. The crossing of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan, the death and resurrection of Christ are explosions of God's power that are meant to colour the whole horizon of the believer's life in order to assure us that our God, who who so mightily handles great emergencies, is surely adequate for the smaller crises of our lives. Our God, who can handle great emergencies, 
is surely adequate for the smaller crises of our lives. The preeminent place of the ark, the people consecrated, the purposes of the miracle. Verse 13, the promise, the promise. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So often in God's purposes, the promises are conditional upon an act of faith. Time and time again we see that. Now, it does, it's, it's just of interest, and Peter would be dealing with this more next time. So we often see pictures, and there's so much wrong with this picture. Um, there we are. I, I put this in case any of the youngsters were here. But this is just symbolic of what it would have looked like with the priests carrying the ark into the middle of the river. There's a lot wrong with that. It was dry ground for a start, and the actual wall of water was about eight miles up the river at a place called Adam. So that's not a very accurate picture, but it would give for youngsters an idea of what the ark would have looked like being carried across the river. Dalrath Davis says he saw a cartoon of the priests speaking to each other and saying, do you realise how silly we will look if we stand in the Jordan and nothing happens? How true that is. We sometimes have to take that step of faith, don't we? Start on something before actually the Lord actually deals with us and speaks to us and helps us. Um, might be doing open air work. We don't feel like it. But once we start so often these things, the Lord actually then appears for us. Another parallel of that came to mind would be Naaman, wouldn't it? I often think of Naaman. That dirty river he dips under, looks at his skin, no change. Are people laughing at me? Six times he does it. Still no change. How stupid am I going to look if I do it the seventh time and nothing happens? But he does it the seventh time and he's healed. Anyway, another parable would have been Naaman. So here was a test of faith. But we see as always with God's work that he was going before. The people are reminded that he is the Lord of all the earth. How often we need to remind ourselves of that, and Philip reminded us that recently. So a miracle is promised. This is the promise the waters would stand as a heap upstream and allow the people to cross. Joshua, by now, had been encouraged by the report of the spies that the people on the other side, their hearts were failing with fear. God had given clear instructions to Joshua and the great company of the Israelites, of the Israelites through the officers. The people face a mighty flooded Jordan and walled cities that they are told to consecrate themselves in preparation for what the Lord of the earth would accomplish. Hear the word of, the, of God, which he spoke to Moses when he gave commandments concerning their entry into the promised land. And here's a wonderful promise. Moses said, Observe and hear all these words, which I command thee, that it may go well with thee, with thy children after it be, when thou doest that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord thy God. This was in preparation for what was going to be happening, one of the final encouragements Moses gave to the people. Here is the promise. 
Observe and hear all these words which I command thee, that they may go well with thee and with thy children after thee forever, when thou doest that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord thy God. Final observation. To do that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord thy God. Often for us seeking guidance is not so clear, as in many situations there may be appear to be a range of options that all appear possibly right in the light of God's word. So we might say, yes, I want to do that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord my God. But so often we think, that could be right, that could be right. But sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, God's way is clear, but we won't face up to it. We must in these situations not let our human reason be the arbiter, but prayer and dependence on God. Do that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord thy God. If we are serious in that endeavour, we have this great promise, as these Israelites had the great promise that they would get across the Jordan on dry ground, God says, it will go well with thee. Ultimately, as disciples of Christ, we have the option to do what is right in our sight or to do what is right in God's sight. Now, for most of us, that won't incur being called to go to the mission field, to go into full-time service and leave home, or whatever it may be. But so often, day to day, we are constantly facing decisions. And we have to not just use our own reason. We have to do what is right before the Lord. As I was preparing this, that was a verse that came up on one of the Spurgeon's mornings or evenings or checkbook uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it really struck me that this tied in so well that Moses actually gave that command to do what is right, but also the promise that it will go well with thee. Now, we could spend some time looking at what that really means, but we know what it means for us as the Lord's people. To be found in God's will, there can be nothing better, and he will look after us. Many years later, when many disciples were leaving Jesus, Jesus said to his disciples, will you go also? And they said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Now, if we really believe that, we won't find it hard doing what is right in the sight of God. And then final observation. The Jordan here is a very graphic picture of death. There is no choice. All will have to cross this fearful enemy. But for those who are looking at the atoning blood of Christ there in the midst of the flood, the crossing to glory will be on 